Good morning, church. I have gotten a lot of questions about uh, my face already this morning. I, uh, I was out in the sun quite a bit this week, and I, I, I'm tr- I, I just want to say I'm selling it out for you is what I'm doing. Uh, it seems like I don't believe in technology and sunscreen, and I learned my hard lesson. And uh, so this is a series about that. It's a series about technology. And we love technology when it comes to sunscreen. We love technology when it comes, I, I wish I'd done that earlier this week. We love technology when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the gifts that come along with it. But we know there's also drawbacks and there's dark sides to the technology that we have. And as this church, our desire is to be a church that discusses the most relevant issues of our time in light of a message that came thousands of, of years ago from Jesus of Nazareth, who taught us about the kingdom of God. And our belief is that as ancient as these truths are, they speak uh, so relevantly to the issues of our time that come into play even today. And you may not think about the Bible as this book about technology, but uh, what I want to do over the next five weeks is I want to point out how it is that. It's a book that talks about the advances in culture and how we get our minds around building boundaries to the great gifts that we bring into the world as we try to cultivate the creation that God has given to us. What we also believe is that the family is the building block of the culture and how families do affects how the entire culture is going to go. And so a few years ago, we started a a, a movement here or a, a, a focus here called Faith at Home. And Faith at Home is really the idea that really uh, the foundation of faith, the vitality of faith happens first and foremost in the home. That's how kids come to faith. And, and some of you grew up in households where that was the case. Others of you didn't, and you found faith later. But we, we think in an ideal setting with parents that are trying to help their kids follow Jesus, that's where the primary place of spiritual caretaking happens. And so it's the role of the church to step in beside families, to aid and resource families in the process of faith formation for kids. And when we talk about families here, it can be really easy to feel left out because we know that not every family looks the same in, in, in this building. But what we believe is it's important for all of us to feel a sense uh, that we are called to find family wherever we find ourselves. And so for some of us, that looks like spiritual friends that we do life with. For some of us, it's the connecting point group, uh, our community groups that we do life with. For some of us, it's siblings or it's parents. But, but for some of us, it looks more like kids who are in the home in this season. Some of you have had kids and they've already left the house. But all of us find ourselves in a sense of what family is, whether that's a family that we live with or that's the family of God that God has called us to partner with in the development of our kids. Because these baptisms matter not just for those whose families are represented, but all of us are part of the family of God, right? Amen? And so it's our job to walk with everybody in this building. And that's why I'm grateful for what happens in the backside of our building right now. There are kids that are being formed in the image of Jesus as we as adults are getting the same opportunity. And so Faith at Home is a partnership between the home and the church to develop disciples of Jesus. And if you haven't ever been to our Faith at Home Center, which is out these doors, to my right, I want to encourage you to go there later today or maybe next week because there's lots of resources about different stages of life and issues that you may walk through as a family that we're trying to resource you for. Uh, and, and I know Greg Pirtle, our family minister, is going to be up in, in just a little bit. would love to tell you more about all the resources that are there to help you check out books, whatever it is that may help you in, in the questions you have. But a part of Faith at Home is also our campaigns that we do uh, usually every year. Uh, we do these campaigns that are 90 to 120 day focus, focuses, basically, on different virtues or habits that we want to develop in our life of faith. And so uh, a few years ago, we did something called 
prayer at home, and we challenged all of us to be praying on a daily basis, be praying with uh, close spiritual friends, with spouses, with uh, our kids and our, and our families. We did a, a series called Meals at Home, a campaign that was focused on trying to get us back around the table, having important conversations, because that's where formation happens and important things happen is around the table. Uh, we're going to challenge you in this series around technology to get back around the table and to do that without your devices that sometimes take us away from connecting with one another. We also did a series called Party at Home, where we really took back the party and said parties shouldn't be left for those who don't have anything to celebrate. We as believers in Jesus have something to celebrate. So we want to throw parties, and we want to be known as people who celebrate often the good news of Jesus. And then last summer, we did Summer of Service. So these are some of the campaigns that we've done. We're starting today a new campaign called Tech at Home, and you've heard about it. Uh, But it is trying to challenge us to think about how our devices, how the technology in our lives is either bringing us toward connection or taking away from connection. We all know that's a challenge, and it can be a great benefit. We connect with people because of the technology we have, but we, uh, we really believe as a church that technology is a wonderful servant, but it makes for a terrible master. So we want to be people who really put technology in its place and find its source of connection and put it away when it's needed also so we can connect with one another on the journey of faith. Right now, I want to lead us in a prayer, and then I want to get into the first message in this series I'm excited to share with you in just a moment. Let's pray this morning. Our God, our Father, we thank you that you are a God of innovation. You're giving us the skills and the the, the abilities and the the wisdom and the ingenuity, God, to craft and build new things, new tools that help uh, in in our ongoing tasks that you've given us to subdue the earth and to rule over it well. So God, I thank you for the technology that we have, but I pray that we would be able to find its proper place in our lives, that we would use it in a way that would lead us toward connecting and not away from it, and that we not stand in the way of our connection as well. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, when you really narrow it down, technology is a tool. And the way I want to define a tool is this way this morning. A tool is an object that extends or increases our ability to do a particular task. So, for instance, later today at 2 o'clock on CBS, there happens to be a golf tournament on uh, this afternoon called the Masters. And I wish I would be there. I'm actually at a a meeting today, but it's taped. I'll watch it a little bit later. Don't tell me tonight at the screening what happened, okay? I don't want to know. I want to be able to watch it at home. But but if you turn on that television at that time, some of you will nap at that time because you think golf's boring, whatever. But others of you will turn it on, and you'll notice that these guys who are walking around the course, they carry around these tools with them. They carry around 14 of these tools. They're called golf clubs. And it's a tool because if you had, you know, a golf ball in your hand, you might be able to throw a golf ball, you know, 30 or 40 yards. But if you have a, a club in your hand, all of a sudden you can extend that golf ball's reach 300 yards, some of the best who are out there. Or think about a hammer, right? A hammer is an extension of your hand. It, it would be one thing to try to get nails into a board without a hammer. But if you have a hammer, all of a sudden that extends and increases your ability to be able to hammer nails in. And you have a, a nail gun, and it is even more exponential what you can do with nails. But without any of those tools, it's impossible. A, a fork, if you can think of it that way, is actually a tool, right? It's an extension of your hand. And, and many of us know the blessing that a fork can be, right? I mean, the right cheesecake, but some of us know the detriment of a fork if we don't get it under control, right? There's boundaries around all of our tools that are important. Think about all the different tools we use. A car is an extension of our ability to travel and to go places. And it's a blessing to be able to do that. You know, uh, a couple times in my life, I've traveled 26.2 miles in a single day on foot. I, I, I'd run a couple marathons, and I was sore the next day. But I've traveled hundreds of miles by car and never felt anything except maybe a little bit of a sore back after 
the next morning. It's, it's amazing how an airplane even speeds up travel even more. And our phones and our computers and our tablets, they're all tools as well. They extend our ability to communicate. They extend our ability to do research and to find out information. They're great benefits and blessings in our lives. And every increase in technology increases and expands our ability to do new tasks. And as much as some of us would like to complain about technology, we really don't want to do away with it, right? I mean, how many of you would like to go back to life before the refrigerator? Not something I want to go back to. Or how many of you would, like, would choose to go back to a world without the polio vaccine? Think about all of those great plagues that happened that now we're gaining mastery over through medicine in some ways. How many of you would, would voluntarily give up your car to go back to the wagon? I'm guessing not many of you would make that trade today. But we also know that with all the benefits that technology has, there are its dark sides. Think about email for a moment, right? I mean, email is a great blessing until you spend seven days off of your email on vacation and have to come back to the hundreds of emails afterward, right? Or you can think about all kinds of technology as drawbacks. Cars are wonderful things, but many of us have been in car accidents, or we've known the tragedy of maybe losing a loved one because of the speed the cars were able to give to us. You see, tools can give to us. They can also take away from us. And that's why finding boundaries for our technology is such an important thing because tools, when used the way they're intended to be used, can add great benefit to our lives. But when they're used in ways that are not their intent or beyond the boundaries of what God intended, often they lead us away from faith. And that's why this conversation is so important. For instance, did you know that this year, on average, the average person in this room will pick up their cell phone 81,500 times in one calendar year. In, in waking hours, that's every 4.3 minutes. And if you don't think that's doing something to you, it's like a liturgy, isn't it, right? We, we rehearse words when we come together, when we sing God and uh, God's, uh, to God on Sunday mornings. That's forming us to be a certain kind of people. Well, imagine what it's doing every time we pick up our phones and we do that so much more often in our lives. Out of 8,000 Christians that were surveyed in a recent a survey, a study project about social media routines, more than half of the respondents, 54%, these are Christians, admitted to checking a smartphone within minutes of waking up. A lot of us would probably find ourselves in that category. But when asked whether they would more likely, uh, were more likely to check email and social media before or after spiritual disciplines on a typical morning, 73% said it's their phone first before any kind of spiritual discipline. You see, technology is a wonderful servant but it makes for a terrible master. And there's a scripture I want to point us to this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. We're going to open a few scriptures this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's responding to some questions they have about life in the first century. And I want you to just pay attention to what he says in this one verse, and then I want to make some applications uh, to the world of technology. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. See what Paul's saying, right? He's saying, you know, there's a lot of things that we can engage in that are lawful activities, but the larger question is, what is beneficial for us? What is it that's going to add to our lives? What is it that's going to lead to the abundant life that Jesus came to bring to us? And one of the goals of this campaign is to ask that question about our lives. Maybe there's a lot of things that are acceptable that are within the boundaries of the law, but we really are leading a life that's on mission, on purpose. What would that look like in the realm of our screens and our technology? 
Technology can produce tremendous good. And this is not a series that's just slamming technology. This is really to ask the question, how do we live the best life that God has called us to live? And some of us, I'm afraid, are being mastered by our technology. We're becoming slaves. Now, one response to this whole dynamic is to react strongly against technology. And if you spend much time researching uh, this whole field, which I've been reading a lot in this, and it causes me concern. Holly and I have started having conversations about our activity well, as well. It doesn't take long before fear and anxiety start to set in. Start to wonder, what are these screens actually doing to us? And we don't have enough research to really know fully about all of that. But as we walk through this campaign, there will be some of you who are going to want to react real strongly. Maybe you want to throw out all your screens. You remember those days we used to break our CDs at youth retreats, right, and burn them in the fire? Some of you may feel a similar way, although that's harder to break an iPhone screen, I think. But you, you may become anxious about what are your kids really engaging in or what are, what's your spouse engaging in? What, what are you really having boundaries around to really do this well? And, but before you move to Lancaster County and join an Amish community, maybe there's another way to think about that. And that's what we want to help you see. Now, if you notice, I'm not all uh, that experienced when it comes to parenting. Uh, I have an eight-year-old who's my oldest, and, uh, and so I think it's probably pretty wise not to give parenting advice, at least until your kids are out of the house, right? So I, this is not, don't consider this parenting advice. Just consider this uh, an observation about parenting, okay? My observation is this. Be careful about being a door number two parent. Now, what's a door number two parent? What's door number two parenting? Door number two parenting is when you say, whatever you do, don't go behind that door. Because what's behind that door is so bad. You, you know, door number two is a forbidden, and we're not going to even talk about what's behind door number two. And if you do that enough as a parent, I've noticed there's a chance you'll have a kid who only grows more curious about what's behind door number two. It starts to add curiosity and wonder, and even an obsession with discovering what's behind the prohibition. The endless tension and anxiety and rules and fear and warnings sometimes create the opposite effect of what we intend for them to. Your kid may become more interested than ever. They may become really, really curious to find out what's behind door number two. Now, to be clear, some things are dangerous. There do need to be boundaries in our lives. This is not about not having prohibitions at all. Uh, you want your kids to avoid certain things, and you want to build in them this kind of internal mechanism that knows what's good and what's harmful and how they can navigate that, especially when they're on their own when they leave the house. So what I'm talking about when I'm talking about door number two parenting is not you know, we don't have prohibitions or things that are off limits. But when I talk about this, what I'm saying is I, I, I think we have to be careful not to add more energy to these conversations sometimes than what we intend. Because sometimes it has the opposite effect. You've seen this before, haven't you? Maybe you remember your child who was younger. Maybe it's today, really, to be honest, too. You, you prohibit some toy if that's the punishment. Isn't it amazing how that uh, prohibition actually adds an increase in desire for that thing, right? I mean, if there's a toy that's not played with and you want it played with, the way to do it is tell them they can't play with it, and all of a sudden they'll be using it you know, more than they've ever used it before. It doesn't matter if it's a rubber band or a bouncy ball. If we tell our kids they can't play with it, all of a sudden it's the thing they're focused on most. And I, I think this happens in our lives of faith sometimes. I mean, think about this in our own lives. Sometimes the no that we're told is the very thing that drives us more to pursue that thing once it's off limits. I got to thinking about this in terms of the spiritual life, and I realized that there's scriptures that talk about this idea. Before we get to those, think about this just as an adult, not just kids. I mean, when you go on a diet and you decide you're not going to eat carbs, do those things, carbs, just all of a sudden you don't want them anymore? In some ways, it's the very thing you crave most, right? I mean, you can say you're not going to have dessert, but Bluebell ice cream still calls your name. 
In fact, there, there, there are companies that play off this entire prohibition idea, right? Um, and one of the most insidious is the Girl Scouts. Have you noticed this? You know when they have their cookie campaign, right? Janu- early January. I- I'm wondering if they're tapping into something that we forget about, right? People make these decisions, these resolutions, and by the middle of January, how are you going to say no to tagalongs or thin mints, right? I mean, once something is prohibited, it takes on a power that it didn't have before. The Bible actually describes this very dynamic as it relates to the law. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, beginning in verse 7, Paul talks about the law. And right before this, he said, you know, there are things I want to do, and I don't do them. There are things I don't want to do, and I end up doing them. And he talks about this internal war, this struggle. But listen to what he paints as the power behind that struggle. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, springs, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Isn't it fascinating what Paul's saying there? He's saying the law, the prohibition, the thing that you couldn't do, was the very thing that led you to sin. And the hope was, from the beginning, that God would draw us away from sin, that saying no to all of these things would be the very thing that we would try to pursue righteousness and we would be led away from those things. But what Paul says is, no, the law actually led us to sin. It gave sin a power it wouldn't have otherwise had. Isn't that remarkable? You know, one of the common criticisms of uh, modern-day Christianity is that the church knows a whole lot more what we're against than what we're for. I mean, the culture's heard loud and clear what we're against. But I wonder, have we communicated near as well the things that we as Christians are for. I wonder if it's as clear about what we're for than what we're against. Remember I, what I said, that prohibitions aren't all that effective. They actually give power to the very thing we're trying to avoid and move people away from. And the church is attempt to be against certain things. I wonder if it's possible that the culture has been led toward those kind of things. I wonder if it's possible that sometimes we're led toward the very things we don't want to do. Paul seems to admit that in Romans 7. It's a struggle. And all of us can point to that, right? I mean, the very thing we don't want to do, we end up doing. I think it's interesting, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees on this very topic. The Pharisees are quite concerned with maintaining the law. They don't want to go back to exile, right? The Pharisees are trying to say, let's do the right thing, because if we do the wrong thing, we'll, we'll end up going out of the promised land again. So they're very careful to say, okay, the, let's honor the Sabbath. And so they create all these laws around that to make sure that we don't get anywhere close to making a mistake there. But there's a point in the Gospels in Matthew 22. It's a familiar passage I've read many times before. But maybe you'll see it in a new light this morning about this idea of prohibition and positive command. Jesus is asked a question by a, a chief teacher, a teacher in the law. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? I want you to pay attention again to what Jesus says here. It's Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. This is Jesus' response, greatest commandment. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these 
two commandments. Did you catch it? Jesus has all kinds of prohibitions that he could have drawn from in this moment. But instead, what does Jesus say? I want you to love God, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. No prohibitions, right? Catch this. 613 laws in the Old Testament. Make sure I get this figure right. 365 out of those 613 laws are prohibitions in the Old Testament. It's almost 60% of the laws are negative. You think about the Ten Commandments. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are negative commands. Do not murder. Do not covet. Do not steal. Do not lie. But when Jesus is forced to choose, he doesn't go to a prohibition. Instead, he chooses two positive commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. And if you do those things, you'll actually keep the entire law because Jesus knew what he was for. It's remarkable. As I thought about this, I went back to a Texas country song by a singer named Pat Green. Some of you have heard of him. Now, it's not the one you're thinking of. Probably we're going to sing this morning. But it is a song that he put out recently in a recent album, and uh, it's called What I'm For. And I'm going to let Shane and Zach play this song for you. Um, But I want you to hear this in light of what Paul's saying. The prohibitions sometimes lead us toward the very thing that they... That they want, we want to hide people from. But if we find out what we're for, all of a sudden it clarifies so many things, just as Jesus said. A couple of years ago, my wife and I got one of those rare, glorious opportunities to get away without the kids. And so we were gone, and, and about day two or day three that evening, um, we get a text from my oldest daughter saying, I'm tired, I'm ready to go to bed, and... My sister won't leave me alone. So my dad had come up from Houston to take care of the girls. And, and so our first response was, well, where is granddad? And Morgan said, text back. She said, he's in the living room. What's he doing in the living room? Go get him. He's on his iPad. And no, I don't want to go get him. And you have to understand, my youngest, she has the gift of pushing buttons and it's an art for her. And sometimes there are times I know as a dad, she's down the hall, so she can't hear this. There are times I know as a dad, I should be like, stop that. But it's so good that I'm like, I'm just going to let you do it, you know? And, and then I'll stop her after, after we laugh. But so they're having this whole thing in, in Morgan's bedroom where Madeline won't leave her alone and she's annoying her and driving her crazy. And so I decide I'm just going to pick up my phone and I'm going to call my dad. So I call my dad and I said, dad, uh, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's great. Everything's great. Hey, how are the girls? Oh, they're great. You know, they're in bed right now. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to talk to him. Would you mind taking the phone back there and going to get them? And I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be great because he'll walk in and we can kind of figure all this out. And he gets back there, and, and um, I didn't know. My wife had texted to Morgan at the same time I'm on the phone with my dad. Granddad's coming back to check on you. So he gets back there, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. They weren't in bed. They're actually reading together in Morgan's room. It's so sweet. You girls are just the best. Because they don't want to deal with Granddad, so they hatched a plan through all this technology. And it's great. We have this technology where we can know our younger daughter is harassing our older daughter, And we can try to do something about it. And at the same time, the disconnection of my dad sitting on the couch when he's supposed to be taking care of this while we're on vacation. And we've experienced both sides of this. We've experienced the joy of of being able to see face-to-face now our loved ones from different places. I can talk with my family. I can talk with my sister and my dad. And we can look at each other face-to-face 
through our phones. But then at Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, I had this picture of all of us sitting in the living room together and every kid and every adult on a different device, not talking with each other. It's like we communicate better when we're apart from each other than we do when we're in the same room together. And even myself in my own life, I had this thrill of playing games on a phone, like the quiz game that Colin and Holly got me started on where I almost won 65 bucks last Sunday night. I got down to the last question out of a million people. I was one of the few hundred left, and I answered it wrong, but the rush of adrenaline and having my daughters and my wife around me helped me helping me answer these questions to also on the other side of it looking up sometimes. And for 45 minutes, I've just been scrolling on my phone aimlessly and mindlessly. This is the world that we live in, the balance between connection and disconnection. And so when we ask why tech at home, well, it's because of this very reality. And the verse that comes to mind for me is John 10.10. The thief comes only to to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it to the full. There is a thief who wants to steal our time, who wants to steal our resources, who wants to steal our relationships, and our very lives. But then there's a creator, a life giver, who created us to live and to live life to the full. And that's really what Tech at Home is about. It's about putting technology in its proper place so that we can live lives to the full and not just through a screen. So there's three things that we're going to ask of you during this campaign. Ask you to, to, to come in with us and to look at these three Ds. 3D is what we're thinking of. And the first is disconnect to connect. Our goal is not just less screen time. Our goal is to actually connect with the people and the world around us that God created, the people who are created in God's image that we get to see face-to-face every day. We want to connect, disconnect to connect. We want to create conversation. The second D is we want to deepen internal values. Colin brings up a great question this morning. What are you for? What is your family for? What are we for? What is your small group for? A few weeks ago, I had my daughter's list out. What are the most important things in your life? What do you wish you had more time to do? What what things would you not want to live without in your life? And they made some really great lists. And then I had them prioritize those. And guess what? Technology was not on either one of their lists. Neither one of them said, I wish I had more time to watch TV. I wish I had more time to be on my phone. No, they want to play with friends. They enjoy sports. They enjoy so many things. And then as a family, we asked this question this week, what are we as a family for? And of course, my youngest being my youngest, she goes, Jesus, because that's the church answer, right? She's a minister's kid. But it's true. We're for Jesus. We're for cooking breakfast together. We're for time with family and friends. We're for being healthy. We're for Disney. We like Disney. We're for the beach. Our technology thing, we're for HQ, and we're for Survivor. We like to watch Survivor together. We're for reading before bed, but we're also for prayer and for serving others. We, we start to look into what we are for as a family. And having this, uh, having this conversation really helps us say, this is what we want to do more than these other things that we sometimes do. And so we want to invite you to have this conversation. In fact, this week, in fact, at lunch today, talk with your family, talk with your small group. What are we for? Make your list and prioritize it and then compare to how you spend your time and resources. 
and you will see really what you are for. And then the last is develop healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries means having a purpose. It means knowing your why. Talk about your whys. Why do you need that app? Why do you spend so much time on the phone? Why do you need to be available right now? Why are you so concerned about using this type of technology? Share your whys with one another. So those three Ds are what we want to call you to. And so to help you with that, as you leave this morning, we're going to have someone at each door helping pass out a couple of different tools that we have for you. First of all, we have our Tech at Home guide. And in here we have some ideas, some conversation starters, some, a list of resources to help you with different things when it comes to technology. Uh, trust me, this is, this is not the, the end-all, be-all of every single resource that's out there. If you Google uh, technology help, you will get a ton of stuff. But these are a few things that, that some of our, on our staff use and find helpful, and we want to pass those on to you. And we'd love to hear from you if you have other resources uh, that you think could help others during, uh, during this campaign and beyond. This is just a starting place. The other thing you're going to get is you're going to get a bag with some question cards, tech at home question cards. Now, these are a little bit deeper than the questions that we had for Meals at Home uh, two or three years ago, but they're great conversation starters. Some of the questions are great if you have younger kids. If you have kids 10 and up, I've discussed some of these with, with my 10 and 13-year-old already, and they've, we've engaged in these conversations. And so we want you to pick up one of these as well and just begin having this conversation. And then throughout the campaign, we're going to continue to try to engage you in different ways uh, with conversation, uh, with questions, with discussion about technology and how we can put it in its proper place.